Please open your Bibles to the Song of Songs, chapter 1. This morning we will turn our attention to verse 9, chapter 1, verse 9, through chapter 2, verse 7. So as you're finding your way there, let's stand together and we will read this portion of the song and then pray for the Lord to help us as we as we consider the song. Song of Songs, beginning in chapter 1, verse 9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. As an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your word and grateful for the many ways in which it calls us to the Lord Jesus Christ and the many ways in which it calls us to follow him. And we ask that his spirit now would help us to see him here and would call us to follow him here through this text. We ask these things in his name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this, this song is largely about the love of the man and the effect that his love has on the woman. It's about the love of the man and the effect that his love has on the woman. And as, as with last time, I give you two words, two key words to hold on to through the through the message, I want to give you two more. I don't know that we'll do this every week, but there are two words that, that jumped out of the text at me and grabbed my heart. I want to give them to you. Those words are sachet and shade. Sachet and shade. And my prayer 
is that those two words will from this day forward be associated in our minds and hearts with the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my sachet and He is my shade. And He is so lovely in these things that I want to be these things for my spouse. Once again, we notice that the woman is doing most of the talking. So He says, the man says and does loving things to and for her, but we see in these larger sections her describing his effect on her. All right. So look with me again at, at verse 9. The man says, I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of jewels. Now he's not exactly saying, oh, you look like a horse. There are some compliments in this song that we would find a bit of a put-off um, in, in our modern days. But that's not what he's saying. He's not telling her she looks like a horse. Ancient sources indicate that, that Pharaoh's horses were extravagantly decorated. They were magnificent to look at. And that's what he's saying to her. And in verse 10, we see that that's what he means. She is magnificent to look at. This is, and this is striking given what we know about her, what she said about herself earlier in the song. Her skin is damaged by the sun. It's possible that she has literal jewelry on her cheeks and on her neck, but given what we find later, I'm inclined to believe that he is using a metaphor here. He's not talking about literal jewelry. If she's been damaged by the sun, what, where, where would that be most obvious? It would be most obvious on her cheeks and on her neck. What she thinks is unattractive about herself, this damage that the sun has done to her skin, her cheeks and her neck, He finds beautiful. Your cheeks, your neck are gorgeous. And that she doesn't have jewelry on, literally, perhaps explains what the chorus says in verse 11. In verse 11, the chorus offers to make her some jewelry. We will make for you jewelry of gold studded with silver. And this could be taken a couple of different ways. It's possible that they are joining in celebrating her her beauty. But it's possible also that given her cultural unattractiveness, they could be saying, okay, if jewelry would help, we'll be happy to make a bunch of it for her. At any rate, they're, they're offering to enhance her beauty. Let us enhance her beauty, beauty, which sets up what she says in verses 12 through 14. Look there with me. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Now the comment about the couch could be understood to mean, while, while the king was loving me, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Nard, nard was, used for, was used for perfume, but... Verses 13 and 14 indicate that she's using the word nard metaphorically. She's not talking about literal perfume. She's saying, while he loved me, I began to be fragrant. Now, what what does that mean exactly? Remember that the song began with her praising his fragrance. And then shortly after that, she was giving her own appraisal of herself, and she said that she had been unable to give attention to her own body. And the contrast there was intended to show that he is aesthetically pleasing, he looks good, he smells good, but that she has been unable to devote time to those kinds of things for herself. 
But now she says, as he has loved me, I have begun to smell good. Verse 13 develops that idea further. A, a, a sachet is a, it's like a leather pouch. She has a, a leather pouch of myrrh around her neck. It's like a leather necklace. Myrrh also is used as a pleasing fragrance. And, and what does she say about this pouch of myrrh around her neck? It's him. He is that pouch of myrrh. My beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh. And this sachet is serving double duty in this text. Okay, It's an answer to the daughters of Jerusalem. They said, oh, let, let us make jewelry for you to enhance your beauty. Now she's saying with this sachet of myrrh, no, I, I have a necklace. And it's him. He makes me beautiful. His love is what makes me beautiful. And when you bring in what she says about the nard and this pouch of myrrh, she's carrying that idea further by saying, and he is what makes me fragrant. His love makes me beautiful and his loving makes me smell good. He, his presence in my life enhances me. So she's speaking of the sachet of myrrh. Metaphorically, which makes me think she's speaking of the nard metaphorically as well. As he loved me, I began to smell good. And she develops that idea in verse 14. Henna blossoms were also an aromatic flower. So there's more of this idea of, of smelling good. And then in Gedi was an oasis east of the Dead Sea. So he is to me this aromatic flower, an oasis in a dry land. So she's taking that idea of, of him making her smell good. And in verse 14, she adds this idea of refreshment. He is what smells good about me, and he is what's refreshing about me. His love is doing this in me. So then... He says more about her beauty in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. Why is that significant? Why is it significant that he keeps commenting on her exceptional beauty? It's because she believes that she is common and unattractive. But he is telling her about what he sees when he looks at her. He's telling her truthfully what he sees when he looks at her. And that truth is changing her. We will see that happen throughout the song. As, as the song progresses, she is eventually going to be described in the same terms that he was described at the beginning of the song. We'll, we'll see that eventually. She responds to him in verses 16 and 17. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The, the beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Now, the, the comment about the couch, okay, and the beams of the house is a comment about his beauty. Comment about the couch in the house is a comment about his beauty. We should think of, you are beautiful, you're truly delightful, our couch is green. We should think of that as all coming in the same breath and with the same thought. She's, she's not describing an ugly sofa from the 70s. She's using garden language. We talked about this before. This is, this is garden imagery. Their couch is not a literal couch. It's this lush garden 
And the, the, the house is not a literal house. It's a forest. There are trees. This is an idealized setting for love. She's preparing us here for another metaphor that she's going to use for him later on when she compares him to an apple tree. But the idea here is she's, she's, she's praising him. You are beautiful. Your love has created this, this glorious atmosphere for loving, for our for our relationship. And like she did earlier in the song, she then contra- contrasts his magnificence. You are delightful. She contrasts that with her own intrinsic commonness. Look at the first part of, uh, or first verse of chapter two. She says, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Now, many of us associate those phrases with Jesus, right? We've heard this in many songs. Um, the Gaithers sing a song about Jesus being the lily of the valley, uh, Rose of Sharon. Now we, we do that. We associate those these phrases with Jesus because of the hundreds of years of interpreters allegorizing this text, where they took virtually every element of the text to represent Jesus in some way. That's not really the best way to understand this text. If, if we attribute these phrases to Jesus, it's like we're saying of him, but he's nothing special. Because scholars are not sure that this Hebrew word should be translated rose at all. In fact, the ESV has a note at the bottom of the page that says it should probably just be understood as a bulb. Just, just a common bulb. We, we, we hear the word rose and we think, oh, she's, she's saying that she's lovely. Well, it's likely she's saying, I'm, I'm just a bulb. And then that phrase, lily of the valley. The, the idea there is there's lots of lilies in the valley. If she had said lily in the desert, that might be something special. But there are, there are a lot of bulbs in Sharon. There are a lot of lilies in the valley. And that's the whole idea. She's saying, you're magnificent and I'm common. Now, this, this is not... This is not attention-seeking self-deprecation where she's saying horrible things about herself to, oh, I'm terrible, I'm terrible, say something nice about me. That's not what this is. She, she is. She's magnifying him by pointing to her own commonness. But he won't allow her to think that she's common. Look at verse 2. As a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. So he, he takes that, that metaphor of lily. Okay, you're a lily, but not among lilies. You're a lily among brambles. Compared to other women, you're, you're, you're a gorgeous flower among thistle weeds. So then she picks up on what he says, his comparison, and makes a comparison of her own about him in verse 3. Look at verse 3. As, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. Now this, this is one of the passages that makes me believe that these people are already married. The, those who hold that this song is about an engaged couple approaching marriage they, they believe that the marriage takes place in chapter 5. But that leaves you contending with a number of passages, including this one, which certainly sound like these two are enjoying their marital prerogatives. Right? Verses 3 through 6 are filled with sexual metaphors. And we're not going to focus on the sexual nature of those metaphors because that really isn't the point. 
Their, their sexual relationship is vibrant and wonderful because of what's going on deeper in the relationship. Now, 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 just like he compares her to a lily among brambles, she compares him to an apple tree among the trees of the forest. You don't see apple trees in the forest. And that's the point. He is extraordinary. He's exceptional among the young men. Now, consider the, 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 the significance of what she says in the second half of verse 3. The second half of verse 3, look there with me. The Hebrew text gives us two verbs in the first part of that sentence. It reads, I delighted in his shadow, and I sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my ta- taste. Now our temptation, because we're, we're, we're taking this one chunk at a time, a week at a time, is to consider this without thinking a whole lot about the context, the, the greater context. But context makes what she has just said here explode. Think about what she said of herself early in chapter 1 of the song. Why would a shadow, why would shade be particularly delightful to her? Because of how harshly the sun has treated her as she's been out working in the vineyards. So his love has offered her a place of protection perhaps a place of healing, a place where her skin can be renewed from the damage the sun has done to it. She, she is saying, He is uniquely what I uniquely need. And then she says, and his, his fruit was sweet to my taste. She, she's been working in these vineyards, right? But has not been able to tend to her own vineyard. Now this passage, and, and later on in the song, there's this theme of him and, and their love being her vineyard. And his love has now provided her the opportunity to enjoy, finally, the fruit of her own vineyard. Now verse 4 says the same thing as verse 3. It just uses different words in, it, in, in, in reverse order. He has brought me to the banqueting house is more literally, he has brought me to the house of wine. He's brought me to the house of wine. Remember the first thing that she said to him in chapter 1 was what? Your love is better than wine. Your love is better than wine. So he, he's not brought her to a literal banqueting house. Okay, He has taken her somewhere private and is giving her his love. Then, she says, his, his banner over me is love. That's just another depiction of this shade that he's providing for her. Now, a banner is it's a sign, a standard, but she says specifically, it's over me, and it, it's, it's shielding her. And she says explicitly here, it is his love. His love is over me. So we, we have these two images in verse 3, shade and fruit. We, we, we could say protection and sustenance. We could say that those same two elements are in verse 4 with wine and a banner, but in reverse order, sustenance and protection. We've got those same things again in verses 5 and 6. Look there with me. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. Sustenance in verse 5. and Loving protection in verse 6. He, she, she, she rests in his protection and sustenance. And in all of this, we get the picture of her just basking in his love. 
basking in that he is just what she needs. Then we come finally to to verse 7, where we find a refrain that will be repeated numerous times in the song. Look at verse 7 with me. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. Now, gazelles and does in the Song of Songs and in ancient Near Eastern poetry at large represent the joys of sexual love. So so she is saying to, to the daughters of Jerusalem, swear by the joy of sexual love that you will not stir up sexual love until the appropriate time. Now, now, now some interpreters think that she's asking them not to stir up her love. Saying, don't, don't stir me up until the appropriate time. That's a common view among those who th- believe that this is an engaged couple that doesn't make a whole lot of sense because if you don't want your sexual affections to be stirred up, it's not typically people of your own gender that are the problem. Okay, no, A prevalent view among commentators today is that she's exhorting the daughters of Jerusalem to do exactly what she has done and that is save themselves for marriage. She's saying, this is wonderful. What I'm experiencing is so wonderful. It's well worth waiting for. I, I want you to swear by the joys of love Wait for this. Wait for it. Okay. Well, let's distill all of this down to to three truths. These are the three points in your notes. The first is that marital love, as God intended, enhances the beauty or aroma of our lives. It enhances the beauty or aroma of, of our lives. His Love makes me beautiful. His love makes me fragrant. Second, marital love as God intended provides shelter and sustenance. It provides shelter and sustenance. I delighted in His shadow and sat down and His fruit was sweet to my taste. Third, Marital love, as God intended, is worth the wait. Marital love, as God intended, is worth the wait. Do not stir up love until it pleases. We've said from the, the beginning that this is a song about divine marital love exemplified by Christ. So, How does Christ exemplify these things? Of course, we sing every week about the cross. We sung about it this morning where Jesus shed His blood to take the penalty for our sins so that we might be reconciled to the Father and adopted into His family and given eternal life so that we might spend forever in His presence. His his resurrection from the dead guarantees those blessings to all who repent and trust in Him. But are there things specific to the themes of this passage that Jesus exemplifies? The things that that, that I've just pointed out to you. We could say regarding that first point in your notes, that Jesus doesn't merely enhance us. He is our beauty. He is our aroma. Now think with me for a moment. This is such a a good idea to do. Think... And I encourage you to do this often. Think with me how unloving and unlovely we were when He acted to save us. 
I invite you to think specifically about your own sins, specific sins that had damned you to eternity outside of His presence. Think about what a stench was our sin in the nostrils of a holy God. We had no redeeming qualities. We were everything abhorrent to holiness, but He poured out His blood for us. And not so that He could then keep us at arm's length, but to to, to use Jesus' words from John 14, that He might take us to Himself. We should envision the cross as the price that He willingly paid that He might embrace us for all eternity. But He, but he did not leave us in our filth and stench. He, he, does not, he does not hold us as we stink for all eternity. What does the Gospel say about those who He has redeemed? Galatians 3.27 reads, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. We wear Him. We wear Christ. Pastor Jason already read 2 Corinthians 5.21 to us this morning. I'm going to read it again. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus took our filth, our stench, so that we might take His righteousness, that it might become ours. If we are beautiful, and I believe that Christ sees us that way, and you must as well, if you believe the Scriptures, if we are beautiful, it's because we're in Him. We we have put on Christ. We wear Him. If we are fragrant, it's because His love lingers on us. He is what smells good about us. And I don't know if Paul had the song in mind when he wrote 2 Corinthians 2.15, but I suspect the Spirit did. Spirit inspired in 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? His his scent, His righteousness, it lingers on us so that our godly lives draw the elect and repulse the world. And the more that we enjoy His love, engage in fellowship with Him, the stronger that, that the fragrance grows on us. He is a sachet about our necks. He is what smells good about us. Likewise, He is... He is a tree under whose branches we recline and whose fruit sustains us. In His shadow I delighted and sat down. His fruit was sweet to my taste. Listen, those of you who have known pain, who have known the burning of the proverbial sun, there is no respite, there is no salve, there is no delight like resting in His shadow. To what does Psalm 34 call us? Oh, taste, taste, and see that the Lord is good. Taste, blessed is the man who takes refuge 
in him. We've got both of those things in Psalm 34. We've got sustenance and refuge of protection. Listen, the world wants to sell us garbage alternatives to this wonderful, this wonderful shade of Christ. The world wants to sell us garbage. It calls to us, lying to us, offering us the devil's counterfeits to make us beautiful, to fix our stench, but it all leads to death. The, the devil would move us to make much of ourselves. He would say to us, here's how you can become beautiful. Here's how, how you can become attractive. Here's how you can become significant. The key to the whole thing that the, that the devil in the world sells to us is that it's always outside of Christ. It's always a distraction from Christ. Jesus frees us from that so that our identity is in Him and we understand that the best thing about us is Him. There's freedom in that. There is freedom in that. There's freedom in saying, He is what smells good about me. The world offers false refuges. Career, entertainment, food, exercise, hobbies, family, drugs, sex, money. Come to these things. They'll make you feel better. They'll make you forget about your problems. But all of those things, when seen as ultimate comforts, they're like drinking salt water when you're dehydrated. They will kill you slowly because they distract you from the fountain of living water. But Jesus says, sit in my shade. Eat of my fruit. Enjoy fellowship with me. Taste and see that I'm good. I mentioned last time, there's a reason that the Holy Spirit has inspired sexual metaphors to depict the bliss of fellowship with Christ. It's because knowing Christ in all His fullness is the highest of pleasures. And He calls to us, lay aside the world and all its counterfeits. I would be a sachet about your neck and a shadow over your head. Rest under my banner of love. Fellowship with me. So many of us would hold Him at arm's length, or we could say we would hold Him at Sunday's length. We come here and we listen to others read about Him. We can even sometimes hear our own voices singing about Him, but it's like hearing about and singing about a stranger. There's no personal intimacy or interaction outside of Sunday morning. And so we know, we know nothing experientially of this sachet and this shade. Listen to J.C. Ryle on this subject. We must seek to have personal intimacy with the Lord Jesus and to deal with Him as a man deals with a loving friend. We must realize what it is to turn to Him first in every need. To talk to Him about every difficulty. To consult Him about every step. To spread before Him all our sorrows. To get Him to share in all our joys. To do all as in His sight. To go through every day leaning on and looking to Him. It is ignorance of this way of living that makes so many see no beauty in the Song of Solomon. Jesus invites us to that kind of living. To living life with Jesus in intimate fellowship with Jesus as a man deals with a loving friend. Christ exemplifies the love of this song and calls us to emulate it. Now, how do we emulate Christ in these things? How do we commend the gospel in our relationships as it pertains to the things that we see in this text? 
for many, marriage is a stifling influence in the life of a husband or wife. Their work for the kingdom, their growth in Christ, their flourishing as a person is not helped by their marriage, but it's hindered. Frustration from from dealing with constant hurts and the conflicts of living with another self-centered person distracts them from the fullness of life in Christ. And when we see that kind of thing, when we experience that kind of thing, that is marriage marred by the fall. Jesus calls us and enables us to know something better. He, he calls us, He enables us to love like the man in the song. We are to love our spouses in such a way that they're not stifled but helped. Not hindered but enhanced. And this goes back to God's original plan in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis chapter 2, God recognized it's not good for the man to be alone. So He made a helper suitable for him. That word helper means one who supplies strength that is lacking in the one who has helped. The helper supplies strength that is lacking in the one who has helped. The man in Genesis 2 was made better because of the woman. She complimented him. The the opposite is true as well. The man supplied strength in the area where the woman was lacking. He made her better than she would have been alone. He was what she needed. They they complement one another. That is God's ideal. That is God's Garden of Eden design. Marital love enhances the individual. That is God's design. It makes them more than they would be alone. It complements them. The love of the one is a sachet of myrrh about the neck of the other. And we say that this is God's ideal. And when I say that, I do not mean that this is an unrealistic portrait that no one can attain. This is precisely what the gospel does. It restores us to Eden. And if I had the time, I would, I would, I would argue that the gospel restores us to something better than Eden. Something better than Eden. This is, this, this is not just possible. What we see in the song is not just possible for believers. It is commanded of them. It is enabled in them by the indwelling spirit and is one of the things that commends the gospel to a watching world. See, the world, th- think about the world. Think, think about even most Christians that you know. The world knows only of marriage that starts out hot and cools to indifference at best. War and divorce at worst. And when we live something different, while proclaiming a gospel that transforms, we demonstrate by our marital love, this gospel is true. Now, now what I've just said is not to say to those who are not married that they are less than they would be if they were married. Because I would, I would point to 1 Corinthians 7 and say that Paul teaches the exact opposite about singles there. Okay, The single person who is wholly devoted to God, who is going all out in service to the Lord Jesus, that single is more than that single would be if that single was married. So, so we could say that the key to living a, a, a full life as a fulfilled single or a fulfilled married person is total devotion to Christ in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. 
Only the single who follows Christ with reckless abandon will be all that they can be in singleness. Only the person who is, who is married who follows Christ with reckless abandon will be all that they can be in marriage. Now could it be said that your presence in your spouse's life is a complimenting fragrance? Is, is your spouse better because of your love in their life? Or has your presence been a hindrance to their flourishing as a person, to their effectiveness for the kingdom? Are you a sachet about your spouse's neck? Or are you more like a millstone? If we move further into the passage to, to this next great metaphor, are you a refreshing, sustaining shade for your spouse? You, you know your spouse. You know the difficulties that they've faced, that they are facing. You may even have an idea of, of what's ahead. You can see things coming. Difficulties that they're going to face. I'm about to say something very important, okay? So please listen very closely to this. Did you know that there is no one on the planet better positioned to be shade for them than you? You have the singular blessing, the singular blessing of being the most prominent sanctifying influence in your spouse's life. If your spouse heals from the damage of the sun, if your spouse is refreshed in the Lord, there is no one better positioned to help them in that than you are. No one will play a greater role in your spouse's spiritual development or stagnation than you will. So have you been an influence that has tended only to intensify the rays of the sun, the suffering of your spouse? Has, has your presence in your spouse's life impeded their growth in Christ to their Impeded their healing from hurts? Have you, have you added to the sun's damage to their skin? If your spouse has grown in Christ, has it been in spite of you? You may not even have to ask them. You probably know. Now think with me for a moment. This, this may bring a great deal of this may bring a great deal of conviction. And pain as we think about, oh, I know that I, I have, I've held my spouse back. I've hurt them. I've been a hindrance to them. I have intensified the rays of the sun. I have not been a shade to them. Let's, let's turn the page here and, and think about this. Oh, to be Christ to them. Wouldn't that be wonderful? What, what a wonderful Savior we have. Consider what a glorious thing it would be for, for, for this to change, for, for your spouse to be able to say, my wife, my husband has been the tangible expression of Christ's shade in my life. With great delight, I sit in my spouse's shadow and rest. He, she is my safe place. My spouse's fruits, sweet to my taste. The, the, my spouse is a gift of the Lord Jesus to me. I have only been helped toward Him by my spouse. Listen, you may not have been that before. The Gospel says you can be that going forward. 
If you are in Christ, you can be that going forward. Now we do this, we do this, practically speaking, by encouraging them, pointing them to to Jesus, modeling Jesus for them, being a safe place for them to struggle. You know, so, so often... We are not a safe place for our spouse to struggle. We tend to help our spouses with their sin by prodding them, motivated mainly by our own good, because their sin is a major annoyance to us. I just invite you to think. Can you imagine Jesus being that way? Can you imagine Jesus saying to anyone, get this fixed because you're driving me nuts. This, this problem that you have is getting in my way. This, this is just not the heart of Christ. No, in, in our sin, Jesus pities us because we are miserable. And so He helps us. We should, we should help one another struggle with sin. There's a reason that we're looking at the Christological first. Primarily, we're doing it because that's the correct way to read and handle the song, but it's also the most practical way to live out the application. So many times people come to the Song of Songs and they just go straight to, I've got to do better on this, and I've got to do better on that, and I've got to do better on that, and they leave Jesus out of it completely. We must go to Jesus. We must go to Jesus and enjoy Jesus because He models, He motivates, He empowers us to follow Him in these things. And if you find yourself overwhelmed by this responsibility that you have towards your spouse and these things that we've talked about this morning, the answer is run to Christ and enjoy Him, cling to Him, and then mimic Him in your spouse's life and it will be a delight. Listen, it is enjoyable To be like Jesus when we're enjoying Jesus. And it's only a delight when we're enjoying Jesus. Otherwise, it is a drudgery. An impossible drudgery. We must run to Him. And our temptation, our temptation in this series, one, will be to go straight, as we're talking about these things, sachet, Shade, our temptation is going to be to think about what our spouse has not been to us. One way that the enemy will blunt the impact of this study is to move us to say in our own minds things like, my spouse has not been a sachet and shade to me. Before God, can we all just agree that we're not going to do that? We're going to deal with our own hearts. Because there is nothing less Christ-like than the question, hey, what about my needs? Jesus would say to us, let me be a sachet about your neck. Let me be your shade. Let me love you to the fullest. So the question ought not be, what has my spouse been to me, but have I been a sachet and shade? Has my presence been a blessed spiritual benefit to my spouse? That is the question. You can only control the spouse that you are. You can't not control what your spouse does. And we should be encouraged by this text and by, by the love of Christ toward us to love our spouses well and trust Him with the results. We should love our spouses well for the blessing of loving our spouses well and participating with Christ in their life. One more thing as, as, we, as we close, just very quickly. For those unmarried among us, verse 7 again. 
Do not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This, this refrain will come up again and again, and for that reason I won't say much about it today. There's, there's going to be one whole message basically entitled, Don't Waste Your Sexuality, where we're, gonna, we're going to expand this quite a bit. But I'll say right now, the bliss of knowing Christ is depicted in human relationships only through covenant marriage. When we take the blessing of sexual union outside of that context, we defame Christ. And so the single person is not then left with no way to commend the gospel. The single person commends the gospel to others by living a life that says, He is my sachet and shade. He is my sachet and shade. The, the world would say to you, you don't have anything. You can't smell good. You can't, you can't heal. You can't be anything unless you have a wife or a husband. The single person says to the world, no, this gospel is true because I'm fine without a husband or a wife. He is my sachet and shade. And Lord willing, someday, if you find a spouse then the way that you commend the gospel to the world will be a bit different. But until then, this is how you do it. He is my sachet and shade. Let's pray together. Father, we are gathered together as a body of people formerly damaged by the sun, damaged by our own sin, damaged by the sins of others, damned for eternity because of your great grace, you now covered in the righteousness of Christ, and He is what smells good about us. And He is our shade. I pray, Father, that these words would linger in our minds and hearts. That we would be moved to discard the things of the world that would seek to displace Him. The Holy Spirit would move us to see He alone, He alone is our, is our beauty. He alone is our refuge that we would run to Him, Father. We pray, Father, that in the lives of singles, that they, would, that they would delight to show the world that Christ is sufficient for me. While the world clamors for, for relationships and says you are less than a person if you don't have somebody, let our, the singles at Providence Bible Fellowship say with Woman of the song, he is my sachet and shade. Those of us who are married, Father, let us be so enamored with Christ, so taken with what he has done in us and what his love has done to us that we would desire to be like him in these ways. 
and that we would be an enhancing fragrance in our spouse's life, that we would be a place of shade and sustenance to them. Where repentance is needed, Father, would you grant it? Where change is needed, would you empower it? Would you do it all, Father, with our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus? For your glory, we pray in his name. Amen. Please stand. Let us sing.